You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org. Thank you. All right, so I just wanted to start by first saying a little bit about myself and my background for those of you that I haven't gotten a chance to know yet. And hopefully if we haven't talked yet, we will be able to before the weekend's over. My background, my early background, was not in economics at all. So growing up and through college, I was primarily interested in creative writing and in playing music. So I went to music school, and I was sure that I was headed for a life of kind of literary and musical creativity was my dream. That was my, my great ambition. Um, until age 21, when I took a comparative economic systems class, and it just completely changed my entire vision of what the world was like and opened my eyes to um, the world kind of well, beyond my front door, for one thing, and then also the fact that there were important underlying relationships between a lot of what happened in the world and that there were ways that we could understand the world that had previously never occurred to me. So after that point, after taking that class, I just completely changed my ambitions. Um, one of the readings, the one that probably had the most impact on me at that time, was Hayek's use of knowledge in society. So the first economics article I ever read, um, probably still one of my favorites and the one I would say is the most significant. And from that point on, I just was committed that I wanted to do graduate study. I wanted to be able to continue to work with these ideas for my career. So for those of you who hear a lot about people like, you know, Pete Leeson reading Mises in the Cradle and, um, <laughs> you know, Chris Coyne, all these other guys starting to write articles when they're, you know, 16, 17, 18, that was not me. I didn't read Mises until I took Pete Betke's graduate Austrian class here at GMU. I'd read a lot of Hayek, but never Mises because my exposure was so narrow before I got here. So if you're here kind of because you're thinking about going down this path of future study in Austrian economics, if it's a set of ideas that you're really passionate about and really grabs you, don't worry about the fact that you haven't been studying it from childhood. Um, you know, it, it is possible to, to catch up, but well, I'll let you be the judge of how well I caught up. Okay, so what I want to talk about today um, first, I want to give just a little general overview of what is the political economy of women's rights. So my title here, Political Economy of Women's Economic Rights in United States History. What do I mean by that? What does it mean to think about a problem like women's rights through an, an economic lens, a political economy lens? Then I want to talk about the relationship between that question and the Austrian framework in a couple ways. So first, I just want to share a few theoretical connections. So what is the basic theoretical frame that I started with when I was beginning to develop this research program as part of my graduate studies at George Mason, by the way? Um, and then I want to take it to the applied level and show how I at least tried to apply some of these concepts to an actual historical instance of changes in women's rights. Um, and then you can ask questions. I hope you all have a lot of questions and we can discuss a little bit um, how well you think the application works, what other kinds of ways that set of tools can be applied. Um, and then I just want to wind up and finish up with some, suggesting some future research directions both for that um, type of framework that I used and for the specific project of women's rights. Okay. So as part of explaining what the political economy of women's rights is, I need to first just give a little bit of historical background on what conditions were for women in United States history. Um, so if you read historians on this subject, there's of course a little bit of disagreement over something that you might think would be um, relatively clear cut. But there are a few things that we do know. And one of them is that one of the primary legal treatises that was relied on by 19th century lawyers and the legal framework that most 19th century and late 18th century courts were coming out of had been established in Britain and articulated most canonically by Sir William Blackstone. And his description of the relationship between men and women in marriage, and I'll explain a little bit what, why I'm focusing on within marriage, 
is that the very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during the marriage. So this is coming out of a combination of common law and Roman Catholic tradition. The idea that upon marriage, man and wife become literally one, and that therefore the law is going to treat them as such. So what are some of the implications this has in terms of actual activity and decision-making on the part of people in this society? What it means is that a woman who's married can't independently own land, can't independently own a business. Um, if she tries to make contracts for the pursuit of a particular entrepreneurial venture, her husband has the right to come along and forfeit them after the fact. So her commitments are completely incredible. Uh, she can't keep any wages that she earns because these would be considered to be actually her husband's property. Um, can't sign contracts that goes along with the inability to appear as a party in a court. So you can't sue or be sued for any sort of violation of contractual terms. Similarly, you can't write a will, which means that even if you were able to acquire some property, so for example, one way you might have acquired property as a woman at this time is as a widow because you were entitled to keep a third of the land that your husband had owned after he died. And so, but the, this property that you were able to acquire, you couldn't pass on to your children, for example, in a legally enforceable way, because you couldn't write a will. Also, divorce is almost impossible. Um, so if you are a man, in order to leave your wife, you have to prove that she cheated on you. If you're a woman, you have to prove that your husband abandoned you, usually for at least seven years. So no, you have, you have no economic rights, and you have to be left in this condition for at least seven years before a court will even hear your petition to be able to be free of this loser. <laughs> so there is a little bit of action at this time. There's a tradition um, called the equity court that will sometimes take appeals from people. They say, this particular situation for me is just so incredibly un unjust. I can't live this way. Will you please rectify and adjust the law to modify to fit my specific circumstance? So that kind of one little caveat is the only way that a married woman at this time, which would have been nearly all women, 95%, at some point in their lives would have been married. Um, when you're looking back at the early 19th century, the decision not to get married means you're stuck in this kind of relationship with your father, or you're likely completely impoverished unless you are um, coming from an extraordinarily wealthy family. Um, but so these appeals to equity courts means that if you are a wealthy woman, a relatively well-educated woman, you might get a little bit of an out. But for most of the population, they're stuck in this circumstance of trying to execute their plans and trying to manage their lives without recourse to the economic and legal rights that we normally think are important to market participation. By 1900, this situation has changed dramatically. Um, and most of that change took place even within a slightly smaller period of time of about 1830 to 1890. So we had this long history that goes back to, with rare circumstances, essentially to like the first time a monkey turned into a human. I don't, not a biologist, so don't take my uh, word for that particular transition. But you have this really long history of law supporting this division of labor that left women without access to formal economic, political, and legal institutions, codifying it, supporting it through the political system. And then by 1900, women can all the, of the sudden, not all of a sudden, but through a process which I'll try to explain, now own land. They can own their homes. They can own businesses. They can sign contracts. They can keep their wages, which means that they can work for money rather than simply working for consumption. Um, they can write enforceable wills. And there are also some circumstances now that are extremely or much more generous in terms of allowing you to exit a marriage. Um, you don't have to be beaten within an inch of your life or completely abandoned anymore. Um, they're willing to consider other circumstances. Okay, so my interpretation of how a question like this is evaluated through a political economy framework is that rather than just explaining what conditions for women were like, as I just did for the past seven or eight minutes, we want to go beyond that and ask, how did these changes take place? What were the conditions such that 
people's behavior in one time and place led to the support of this system that held women in a legally and economically inferior status. And now something has changed. So I'll talk a little bit about the what's that are potential horses in that race in a little bit. But something has changed. And what we want to do is try to understand why. So how did the incentives that are going into shaping people's decisions and the way that those decisions interact with each other, how have those things changed such that we're now living in a different kind of world than we were before? So in the particular case of these kinds of legal changes, you have a couple extra complicating factors um, that make political economy a particularly relevant lens. One is that changing the law is a public good. At least that's the, so that's a proposition that I'm advancing in front of you. You can feel free to critique or ask questions about it. But I'm going to say that changing law is a public good because it's a costly investment you must make. It meets all the traditional definitions of being non-excludable and non-rivalrous. If you invest in changing it, everybody else benefits. So you might think we would expect to see a kind of collective action problem or inaction. I mean, certainly from the perspective of any group of people or a person who might want these laws to change, um, they're going to encounter a lot of political barriers and a lot of those public goods difficulties when they try to go down that path. Also, when we're talking about women, there's this extra set of problems, which is that not only do we have a collective action situation, you have this collective action situation primarily affecting people who are completely left out of the traditional vehicles through which we would expect legal change to take place. So you can't vote. You can't be a politician or serve in any kind of legislative body. Again, part of the problem is that you have no access to capital. You can't own things. Um, so you can't, or at least only with great difficulty, can you bribe people to take action on your behalf, for example. Um, and you can't go to court, so you can't sue over the injustice of it, with the exception of those little caveats I made earlier. Um, so the problem, and here's another uh, political economy connection I want to draw, because I think it will be of interest to a lot of people in here, um, is that one of the main problem that we're looking at is within this category of how does a group manage to protect itself from the tyranny of the majority within a democratic system. Um, so I have James Madison up here in The Federalist saying, essentially, that we're not just concerned about the oppression of the rulers in a society, but we're also concerned about one part of a society being able to perpetrate injustices against other parts of the society. So when you have one of those groups without even uh, representation, at least not direct representation, in the process of democratic negotiation, then you might expect this to go uh, severely awry. But in the 19th century case, it's important to pair these kind of considerations with an observation Tocqueville made, which is that despite the fact we had this democratic system, we had these different groups vying in support of their own interests, it still seems as if the United States is uh, destitute of the most perfect instruments of tyranny. So there's something in the structure or the system in the United States that has prevented um, things from getting as bad as they possibly could. Of course, 1800, many historians will tell you, was um, possibly even a particularly low point in terms of women's rights in British and American history because you have codification and strength of the legal system and people beginning to acquire property to the point where it really would be beneficial and women do have opportunities to make economic decisions that are being now blocked. So it's becoming more of an effective constraint, the fact that we have this treatment of men and women as one under the law. Um, but yet, you know, maybe there's still some possibility for change. Maybe we're not completely locked in a tyrannical situation. So on to step two. How does this relate at all? to the subject matter that we're here to discuss this weekend, which is Austrian economics. And so what I want to do, and I know you've heard about these three things from Israel Kirzner, if you didn't know all these things already. Some of you obviously are um, coming in with quite a bit of knowledge about Austrian economics already. But I just want to say a little bit 
about how these relate to the kind of political legal questions that I want to try to answer with respect to women in history. So three core tenets, I would say, of any Austrian framework approach to a question. One, methodological individualism. So what we're particularly concerned with are the actions of the people within a society rather than holistic aggregates. And this will become particularly important because I'll show you in a minute here some of the other explanations that scholars in different disciplines have offered for the women's rights situation in American history. And many of them violate this tenet of methodological individualism because there's not an emphasis, especially when we're talking about political change, on what individual political actors will do in response to particular incentive situations. Rather, it's coming out of more of the equilibrium framework that Professor Kersner was talking about last night, of pointing out some technological, cultural, social reason why a new set of laws is now more efficient, and then just saying, okay, it's the new set of laws is more efficient, so now we have the new set of laws. But of course, we all know that the world doesn't work that way, that legal change is really hard, and political change is complicated and a slow process. So I'm going to come back to subjectivism in a second. But so that's why the process explanation is also a very important tenet if you want to take some of the lessons of Austrian economics and apply them to studying a historical question in as responsible a way as possible. Um, you want to make sure to focus on these considerations of how are the patterns, the outcomes we observe in the world, in this case, the changing status of women, how are those actually an outcome of the actions that those different people have taken? So this is a combination of the perspective of methodological individualism with an emphasis on what you'll sometimes also hear called invisible hand or emergent order explanations. So the fact that these people are not just acting uh, willy-nilly um, without any sort of connection or impact on each other, but that it does come together in a meaningful way. And the third primary tenet, subjectivism, comes into play in this situation, and it's particularly difficult to think about in political context because of some of the things Emily was just mentioning, which is that unlike in a market, it's easier for us to get a sense of what people's subjective preferences are because we can see what they buy. We can see how much they're willing to, to pay for it, how much they're willing to sacrifice for it. There are mechanisms that we can think about that, that might be like that in a political or in a legal system, but it's not anywhere nearly as straightforward as going to a supermarket. So actually observing people's demonstrated preference over laws, which is the only way we can really know which different sets of regimes are going to be preferable to some people. Um, it's a, it's a lot harder, it's a lot messier. Um, you can't necessarily expect it to be work anywhere nearly as efficiently, even if neither system is perfect. Um, so these are the three core ideas that I want to kind of try to bring up throughout um, the historical example I'm going to go through here in a little bit. So now what I want to do is try to, before I dive into the details of the history, explain how I got to the point of um, looking at the question in this particular way. Um, I already mentioned this a little bit, but again, out of the Austrian framework, we want to push past these theories of what I, I said on the slide, exogenous enlightenment, but basically the out of the blue, people now get some better idea. Oh, now I realize I shouldn't treat my wife that way. Um, oh, now I realize that this is like treating women as property. Magic, you know, black box change. Um, explanations like that are not particular, so I presented it deliberately in a way to make it sound silly. Of course, you can present those arguments in ways where they don't sound silly. But what I want to suggest is that they leave out a lot of meaningful content if what we actually are concerned about is the evolution and change that takes place within uh, human societies. Okay, so the applied case, I already gave a little bit of the overview, much better in terms of economic rights to be a woman in 1900 than in 1800. I mean, much better insert any phrase you want to be in 1900 than in 1800, um, but definitely with respect to this particular situation. And one of the substantive changes that took place over that century that makes that true is that states enact a series of laws 
most of these are laws by the formal um, traditional definition. They're passed by legislative branches. Others of them are written into state constitutions when new states enter the union, for example, or when they have a constitutional convention. Um, and they say things like, any married woman may now become seized or possessed of any property, real or of slaves, so that's nice, um, in her own name and as of her own property. I like to throw that in there because it speaks a little bit against the whole exogenous enlightenment idea. We haven't just figured out that it's, you know, we'll never treat people as property. All property owned by either spouse before marriage may be in any manner disposed of by the spouse so owning or acquiring it. So this is Utah, a completely gender neutral statute, the first one, the earliest one I was able to find. Um, Utah was a front runner in a lot of women's rights issues actually. And so these laws that say that traditional common law discrimination, disability, against women, uh, we are ejecting that formally from our legal system. And between 1855 and 1920, most states pass a statute that guarantees to women that they can own separate property within marriage and that any wages they earn will not go to their husbands. So uh, these acts are many and varied in the particular economic rights for women that they protect. So for the rest of this talk, I'm mostly going to focus on protection of both kind of past and future wealth through the separate estate and earnings varieties of these acts. Um, here's a, a little bit of the geographic trend. The darker the state is colored in, the earlier women in that state had protection to both own property in a marriage and keep their earnings. So a concentration of early passage of these reforms in the Northeast and to a, a lesser extent, the Midwest. And then I'll bring this back and talk about a couple more trends a little bit later. Okay. So here are some of these alternative explanations that I was mentioning earlier that I think are very unsatisfying from an Austrian perspective. And that if you have a, a question in the world that is particularly important to you, and you see people offering these kind of explanations, maybe you can bring some of your Austrian insight that you are gaining this weekend and elsewhere in your education and correct them on their errors. Um, and again, and it's not as if any of these relationships that are being drawn out by this scholarship are wrong, per se. It's that they are leaving out an important part of the question and what I would, I would argue is the most important part of the question, which is how the changes take place rather than just noticing that particular relationships exist. So the first one, and this paper by Geddes and Look came out in the AER, it's the first of these papers on this kind of question. Um, they make the observation that things get better for women when women's marginal productivity goes up. So economically extremely reasonable. You have more alternatives, you have more to offer, it gives you a stronger negotiating position. In general, when your productivity marginal productivity goes up, we expect things to get better for you. We expect you to be able to um, capture more on the market. Um, that's important, that's true. The fact that women have earning power is also an important part of the process through which this actual political change comes to be. Um, but this particular paper just doesn't get to starting to talk about that question yet. Scarcity of women is also relevant. So when you don't have a lot of ladies around, people are nicer to the ladies. Bars know this. Hello, ladies' night. And politicians in the 19th century knew this as well. So scarcity of women is a part of my story too, but again, it's this kind of analysis here, because of the way it's, and this is coming out of some of the Austrian criticisms about the way a lot of traditional statistical methods are used within economics, you can point out the fact that there are, there's a relationship between the number of women and the passage of law, but that tells you nothing about the why and nothing about the how. So it's devoid of a lot of content. All it can do is isolate kind of particular snapshot moments in time, and even then only to the extent that you can actually effectively measure the phenomena and the variables that are of interest in trying to look at the problem, which you have to be very suspicious about when you're thinking about something like um, equality. Relative scarcity of wives and daughters is one. This is an interesting one. So this says 
this kind of theorizing basically says men are making the laws, so they'll decide to change them when their daughter's fate become more valuable to them than the fact that they basically get to expropriate from their wives. So would they rather protect their daughters or get everything from somebody else's daughters? And that that will be the switch. And when it becomes more important to protect daughters, then it will be more efficient to have a set of laws that protects women's property. And therefore, it comes to be, again, the black box in terms of the process. Okay, so if we want to start thinking about process explanations, what motivated actual relevant political actors to make these kind of changes, um, I want to suggest, and so this is now, um, some of you who are more familiar with public choice might notice that here I'm starting to draw some connections to public choice. Austrian and public choice are two frameworks that dovetail really nicely together. There are a couple types of explanations. Buchanan called these constitutional and post-constitutional choice. The Ostroms called them constitutional and collective choice. But maybe there was a change in the way our society made laws. So that's one possibility. So if you want to use this as kind of thinking about your own research project, how you want to go, that might be somewhere you, you want to start. Think about whether there was any significant constitutional moment that needs to be looked at. The area I'm going to focus on and the area that you probably see the most action when you're looking on a, a relatively short time frame, which I'm going to call a century at this moment. Um, whether that's a relatively short time frame for you or not will depend on the phenomena you're looking at. Um, is changes in incentives within the lawmaking process. Um, so that's, I'm realizing now that that's oddly phrased. But changes in the incentives that are faced by people who are actually engaged in that activity of structuring what the laws are going to be that affect women. Um, so I'm going to set aside the constitutional stage at this point. Um, I'm open to alternative explanations always, but as far as I know, there was no really major change in the way that um, law was created that occurred kind of in the middle of the 19th century in the United States that would qualify as a constitutional moment. Um, so I think instead that we need to look at how activity um, kind of within that constitutional system played out. So were there changes in technology or the physical environment that altered the way legislators were going to behave? Is that why they're behaving differently in 1900 than in 1800? Were there changes in the rules that shaped how uh, effective and how successful a politician would be? So is he more likely to become reelected? Is he more likely to capture um, other types of gains from his job than he was before? And is that why we see some kind of change? Or are there changes in the way that law or that the accountability of lawmakers to the population is enforced? So are there some sort of discrepancies and variations in the extent to which population in these different jurisdictions that were making law affecting women can actually kind of get the politicians to do what they want. So is that part of the difference? Okay, so technology, rules, and enforcement. And I'm putting those things out there because those are all going to be um, a part of my proposed explanation, um, which is going to focus particularly on the third of these three ways that we can think about a population holding their legislators accountable and that is entry and exit. So constitutional constraints being the first one, a particular prohibition against a legislator or a politician acting in a particular way as written into uh, the rules by which law is created. And again, there's a lot of debates, especially around GMU, as to how effective these things are. Are constitutional constraints the key to prosperity? Or are they just completely worthless words on paper? So you can come join in that conversation if you want. Um, voice and activism. And this is um, coming straight out of Hirschman, Exit Voice and Loyalty. So this idea that you can also put some kind of constraint on your political leaders by maybe complaining directly to them. Maybe you are ruining their reputation by being too vocal. Maybe you're noticing that people in another jurisdiction have it better and you're using your voice to communicate to the people in charge that uh, you think that they should follow in those other folks' direction. 
So there are a lot of different ways that voice has been attempted to be operationalized. And it's tempting to say that voice was near irrelevant in the case of women in the 19th century because they couldn't vote. But that's not true. That would be a total fabrication. Um, despite the fact women can vote, they had had a significant impact on political participation. Um, they were activist speakers. They, of course, maybe this is the most uh, significant one, influenced the things that the people in their family would want. Um, so it's an indirect vehicle for voice, but voice did matter. So both constitutional constraints and voice and activism could have been disciplining politicians in this time and getting them to go along with changing laws affecting women as people came to want a different set of laws over the course of the 19th century. But I'm just kind of, so this is just an analytic move to be able to even plausibly make any kind of point in a reasonable period of time, which is very hard to do when you're talking about such a significant historical phenomena. I'm going to kind of bookend them and talk explicitly about the ways in which politicians might have been in competition with each other and the market for the provision of law as a public good and just ask, are there scenarios under which it was plausible that this kind of competition actually made a difference for women living in the 19th century and for this body of law? Okay, so entry and exit meaning literally, can you exit being governed from one body of law and enter another? Also called interjurisdictional competition, sometimes called tibu competition. There are different sets of conditions that have to be met depending on who you're reading. Um, if you're reading Tibu, who's working more out of a strict neoclassical framework, he has a set of neoclassical assumptions. You can distill almost all of them down to there needing to be two key ingredients. One, you have to have a demand side to the market. You have to have people who have some knowledge that they do have a choice over the laws that are going to govern their lives. And they have some ability to move to take advantage of superior situations when they present themselves. You also need to have a supply side of the market. So if, for example, this set of married women's property law had been established at the federal level, so if states had no authority governing marriage law, then there's no potential, <coughs> at least within the United States, for people to directly opt in or out of one set of the laws or, or the other. So we could not possibly observe them moving or demonstrating a preference for one set of laws over another. But in a political system such as the 19th century United States where you do have marriage law being determined by many different jurisdictions which people are free to choose between, then you at least plausibly have a scenario where you have a demand and a supply in the market for women's rights. And this is another important Austrian point is that I would never want to use the strict tibu form of competition. Uh, it, it's so easy to laugh away because moving between jurisdictions is so costly. Um, any one of those conditions that are outlined in that article is almost impossible to actually observe in reality. So the best thing we can hope for when we're trying to use the market as an analogy to understand a political system is that maybe we at least get a tendency towards provision in this market to move in a positive direction. We're never going to get anywhere near a claim of efficiency. It's never going to happen quickly. Um, but maybe it is something important that's actually happening in the real world. And again, so I'm coming from the perspective that the exercise that we're engaged in as social scientists is trying to actually figure out something and learn something about the world that's going on around us. I would not have written this kind of paper if my goal, by the way, was to maximize professional ex success exclusively. Um, there are some, because, and the reason for that is that this is a big enough question, a complicated enough problem, that you're never going to wrap it up in a clean, neat, um, kind of uncritiquable little bundle that you can put under the Christmas tree. There's always going to be room to critique. There's always going to be kind of new insights to bring to this kind of question. Um, but 
the challenge, the reason why I came to GMU in the first place, the reason why I, I want to still be a scholar here is the freedom to look at a kind of question even if it can't be um, kind of bundled in that neat way. Okay. Um, so the way that I wanted to look and see whether or not this kind of political competition was relevant, whether it did have an impact on laws affecting women's rights, is to actually look at a few things that then should be true if jurisdictional competition was relevant, go to the historical record, and see, do we actually observe them? Did we see those things happening in American history? So the first is, if there was some kind of political competition that legislators were taking account of and adjusting their behavior in response to, then we should see reform in property law when women start moving around more. So one of the first and most significant changes that allowed women to move between jurisdictions more was the opening of the factory system in the Northeast and the early stages of the Industrial Revolution. Second, when it becomes less costly for unmarried women to move, when it becomes cheaper to actually physically move. So not just is it easier for you to live, do you have more choices of places where you can live, can you actually cheaply get there? The third, if legislators face some sort of unique incentive where they're going to be particularly motivated to attract people to their jurisdiction, then that should also be a circumstance in which jurisdictional competition is going to be more robust because the gains to the people who are making law are going to be greater if there's some direct benefit to them from attracting population. And so we should see reform happen more where those incentives exist. Okay. So going to the historical record, first, what happens when it becomes easier for women to support themselves away from home? Okay, so before Industrial Revolution, and the first major phase of industrialization was in the manufacture of textiles. So for a long time, this is how cloth was made. Two people, maybe one person or a small group, sitting alone in a, a house, a cottage, cottage industry, you may have heard the term, that's directly where it comes from, and taking wool and through a very slow and painstaking process using a hand loom to eventually transform that into a piece of cloth. After the Industrial Revolution, um, meaning the development of some sort of uh, mechanical power source, the earliest ones being steam and water, and connecting those to actual machinery that enabled people to execute much more work and produce much more cloth in the same period of time than they ever could on their own, cloth becomes produced this way. So here you might have a woman running anywhere between um, four and 16 of these looms on their own, depending on the particular factory and the way it's constructed. So instead of one hand loom operating multiple times more in, in terms of these large scale products. And what happens is that now women have all these choices of places to live because these factories are popping up all over the northeastern United States and they can actually go and live there. They have a way to leave home that doesn't require marriage. They have a way to acquire wealth on their own, really for the first time. And so in the Northeast, which is where the factory system takes off, um, it's the most populated area. The South is also well populated, but driven, of course, at this time by the slave economy instead of by um, an industrial economy. So in the Northeast is where it's most likely for a woman to be supporting herself, earning money on her own. Um, and these women actually were earning enough that they were sending money home to be able to send their brothers to school, for example, or to support their families. Um, so it is significant. And um, these numbers here are with respect to the entire female population. So in the Northeast in 1830, you have, for example, by this chart, about 11% of women working for wages which is remarkable when you think about almost no women working for wages prior to this. Um, but if you were uh, within the demographic range, so I can't remember if it was 16 to 24, I think 16 to 30, that was most likely to be involved in this kind of employment opportunity, um, a third of women in that age group were working for wages. So among unmarried women, 
So single women who have yet to enter marriage contracts, but many of whom will enter those arrangements after leaving work in this factory system. Um, they are earning substantial amounts of money. Uh, these women come away with hundreds or even thousands of dollars in their bank account, um, equivalent of maybe somewhere between ten dollars and $20,000 in savings today after five years of work. Um, pretty significant. And we see these women renting their own apartments, buying piano. So this is not uh, you know, working for pennies. This is not in the consequential. We're talking about real economic independence for women in a way that had not been really conceivable prior to the Industrial Revolution. Okay. But what we're looking, about, looking at here is how likely do we think it is that women were making an active choice with respect to what kind of set of laws they wanted to live under, where they wanted to live. And there is a lot of evidence that there was churning uh, between jurisdictions and women moving to other areas where opportunities were better for them. So there's actually an active headhunting market. Um, Francis Cabot Lowell, one of the great early industrialists in textiles in this period of time, he starts this practice of hiring headhunters. And this headhunter's job is to go around to all of the farming communities in the Northeast and convince women and their parents that this is not some kind of front for illicit activity, um, that they will be safe, that it's something that will be a benefit to them. And so in addition to sending out these headhunters, they establish practices at the mill that the headhunters can use to pitch to women that this is a good place to live. So it's not just the high wages. They also offer classes. Women working in these factories start their own magazines and publications, so they have intellectual outlets. Um, they have opportunity to attend church services. They have kind of like den mothers who live in these dormitories. This is especially in the early factories. Um, so my point is that the industrialists really go to a lot of effort, especially early on before um, maybe knowledge about these opportunities has really fully integrated into women's choice sets. They're doing a lot to let them know that this opportunity exists and to make it attractive to them. So they are actively working to lure people to alternative jurisdictions. Um, so in addition to that independent earning power and these opportunities, here's a quote. This is a woman who had worked in one of the factories. She writes her biography um, in the 1890s, and she recounts the fact that all across the countryside people were telling stories about how amazing it was that these women were able to go off and take these um, opportunities that had never existed before. Imagine, so compare being able to move to the city and work as a young woman to a near certain life of living and working entirely on a farm. So that is the dominant alternative that's facing these women. So there's a lot of reason to move. Um, and we know that these women cared about the status of their rights. Um, recall, your husband owns everything you earn. That means under the law, if he disappears, you go do some good work in the factory, he can come back and take everything that you have acquired in the time that he's been gone, and legally it is his. So maybe if you have enough resources, you can go to an equity court and get them to take pity on you. But we know from their direct testimony that there were women who would watch the doors of these factories so that they could be prepared to run out the back if their husband came in. Okay. So again, this is why this relationship, so this active mobility of women on an unprecedented scale, the activity of these economic leaders who, it's hard to, it's hard to go into this detail, but um, it's difficult to understate how close economic and political leaders were tied when we're talking about the 19th century. Um, United, maybe you'd still say that's true today, um, but cronyism is certainly not a new thing. Um, it was big in early America. And so I think there's no coincidence that we see this kind of flurry of rights for women occurring in the area of industrialization. So this is getting beyond, again, my attempt at least, to use Austrian insights to get beyond just the observation that earning opportunities are good for women, but to try to put a little bit of meat on those bones and say exactly why, exactly how does that process play out. Okay, the second um, proposition 
All right, I said if I'm right and there's something about jurisdictional competition, which by the way, Emily was talking about being surprised by what you find earlier. And um, I should say with this particular paper, I had no idea when I started working on this question that jurisdictional competition or political competition was going to be anything that I was going to be working with or learning about. Um, I really did start with the question, this is something I want to figure out. Um, I don't know, probably Larry had to read some of the early terrible papers I wrote that used entirely different uh, theories that had very not much power behind them. Um, so I played around with a lot of different ideas to get to this one. Um, and one of the things that was actually suggested to me by Tyler Cowan was I should take a look at where the railroad was established and see if the um, significantly increased and lower cost ability to move between state lines made much of a difference. Um, so kind of like a, a little bit short history of travel here. In 1800, I mean, if you all played Oregon Trail, <laughs> you are a little bit familiar with the broad strokes of this. Um, but it was really hard to get out west. So it would take you six weeks to get from New York to Chicago. It would take you six months to a year to get all the way to the west coast. Um, six months if you could afford to travel through the Panama Canal. Otherwise, you have to go overland and, and contend with all of the risks of that journey. Um, by 1930, you can get from New York to effectively anywhere in the country in three days. And that's because you're riding um, part of the transcontinental rail network that is built up in the intermediate time. So from 1830 to uh, 1930, there is exponential increase in the amount, in the number of miles of rail that are being operated in the United States. Um, you have doubling and tripling within most decades. So I'll say a little bit more about this first. This was something that everybody knew at the time was going to shape the American landscape. So there are cities that were population centers out west that you've never heard of today because the railroad never went there and they died. There are cities where almost nobody lived, but there was a particular political connection that brought the rail to come through the town, and now those cities are uh, major centers. So it was a huge political battle to determine where these railroads were going to stop and where they were going to end. Um, it gets vicious. So this is one of my favorite stories. The governor of the territory of Washington really, really desperately wants the railroad to terminate in Seattle. So he's not the only one. He's one of many political factions, including both um, Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas, who take particular favorite interests to uh, Congress, which is handing out massive subsidies. I have the numbers in the paper, but I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, for, that are going to go to the companies and to the locations where these rail rails are going to be laid. And so a lot of these people lead their own exploratory parties or hire people to try to um, chart paths across the country so they can pick their favorite and then argue for it. So if you're trying to end in Seattle and you're trying to get there from Chicago or Omaha, what you're looking at is, look, is going across the northern end of the Rocky Mountains. Incredibly treacherous. Um, really steep covered in snow half the year. His party almost died twice. Do you think that made it into his report to Congress? <laughs> it didn't. Um, he wrote, out of all of the parties, his was the most laudatory of how wonderful it was to travel this particular route. Because he needed population. If you, and the main reason why you need population at this time, I'm going to get into it in a second, um, now I'll just leave it at the fact that it's politically and economically important. But they were working hard to try to get the rail moving in their direction. And at the same time, you have women who are using that rail and picking jurisdictions to live in. So you have these politicians who are motivated to attract population. They desperately want people to be traveling their direction on the rail because that's how you become an economic center, a, a place of political importance. And so when they start to engage in this battle to figure out who's going to win and who's going to lose, 
um, it's tied up then with these considerations of where are the jobs for women going to be? Where are they going to want to go? Um, and we do see single women who travel west. You can learn, earn a lot more as a teacher out in the west. Maybe you can learn more too, I don't know, but you can definitely earn more out west than out east at this time. Um, so there's higher salaries in a lot of ways. And again, it's kind of similar to what happens in the industrial northeast of these new opportunities for single women that hadn't existed before. Um, and again, I'll get, I'm going to put a little bit of more meat on the why they wanted population so bad bones in just a second. But I just want to note, if we look at where these laws were enacted, again, I don't think it's a coincidence that the places it was easier to get to, where politicians stood to be affected more by entry and exit, because it's lower cost to get in and out, and that means higher benefit to you of leaving if you're unhappy or, or going somewhere else if you're going to be happier there. I don't think it's any coincidence that that affected their behavior in terms of the enactment of women's rights. Okay. So now I want to talk about, and this is the last um, piece of kind of the historical case that I want to present. And I'll, I'll just say a concluding word or two and open it up for questions. Um, but if there are particular incentives that make it in the benefit of legislators to attract this population, um, then again, we're going to see them becoming a lot more likely to reform. So what were some of the reasons why a politician at this time would have wanted to attract population? So we're looking at the western part of the country. Not all of it, but much of it is still part of territories at this time, or at least part of this time that we're looking at. Now, in order for a territory to be admitted to um, the Union of the United States, and Congress makes and breaks its own rules here all the time, but the general rule is that it's going to be a lot harder to get in if you don't meet the population thresholds that were established in the Northwest Ordinance and then copied over into other territorial agreements uh, for admission to the Union. So at first you need about 60,000 people. They ratchet that number up as you start to need more people in order to be able to get one person into the House of Representatives. That becomes the lower bar. Um, but there's a population minimum you have to meet. And why would a territorial governor care? Okay, so who are territorial governors? They're appointed by uh, the executive branch of the United States, directly by the president. They are overseen by the United States Treasury. So they are effectively federal politicians. Many of them are ex-military who had experience in some of the initial territorial um, battles or uh, explorations. And so when these people are appointed by the president, go out and make this territory um, kind of yours. You're going to be the governor. You're going to be the secretary. You're going to be part of this small government, sometimes as few as 25 people involved in the entire government for a whole uh, region. Um, one thing, the, the big thing is, is that that's kind of your job. So I think here about Tullock's bureaucracy. What is going to make your superiors happy? You are in this system whose entire, the, not, the system is not a who, but you're in a system that has a purpose that is intended to expand the United States of America. You do a bad job at that then you're not going to be pleasing the people who are kind of above you in this hierarchy. So that's the broad strokes. Smaller picture, there was a lot of contention in terms of territorial governments in these regions because you're plopping this military guy who was picked by the president into a territory that perhaps he's never lived in. He doesn't know anybody there. And there's dramatic conflict in terms of that whenever the presidency changes over, they can change who the governor is in these territories. So he comes in, he doesn't know any of the local political actors, he doesn't know any of the influential citizens. Um, so it becomes really a matter of contention. States want to get out from under the system of territorial government. It's actually, it sounds like it would be less governed. You're not officially a state yet, you're not a part of the United States. But the reality is that the treasury is looking over every single thing that you do. There's correspondence of the Treasury writing to Nevada, or whatever, I can't remember the exact territory, and saying, did you really need to pay someone to type up these letters? Could you not have written them by hand? Was that really a necessary expense for the territories of the United States of America? 
So there's no freedom. So if we think about politics as kind of a negotiation that you're in, and you're there for a reason and you want to obtain something, um, under the territorial system, you can't really do that. These political operators are left with no authority. So they'd like to get out from under its thumb. OK, so the problem, how do you get out from under the thumb? You need the population. How do you gain the population if you have no women? Because a lot of these territories, we're looking at a population that is about 70 to 95% men, depending on how early they are in their settlement process. Um, men are usually the first people out to a frontier, at least in the 19th century. All right, so what are you going to do? Well, Governor T.W. Bennett from Idaho tells us that what he's going to do is be preeminently liberal in politics, in religion, and in social matters. And the precursor, the earlier part of this quote, is that it's important for them to become an industrial center, a capital center. To do that, they need immigration. To do that, they need liberalism. Governor William Gilpin from the Territory of Colorado, and he's not the only one to do this. There's a bunch of these floating around. I spent a lot of time over in the Library of Congress digging through the different communications these governors were sending. And they distribute these to newspapers across the country. And they basically write up and say, oh my god, Colorado is so great. You won't believe how great it is in Colorado. You can earn so much money living out here as a woman. Um, a lot of them mention the fact that there are a lot of single guys out wherever you're going to be going. Um, so these are one of, I can't remember the exact number anymore, but it was well over 100 different advertisements I found in just the, the period of time I was looking. Um, Garfield County has 1,100 unmarried men. Um, in Utah, they say, for humanity's sake and a mutual benefit to the race, we do earnestly recommend the emigration from down east of a few thousands of virtuous and industrious young ladies. So it seems to be at least plausible that there's some pretty active competitions and pretty strong political interests at this time in favor of trying to attract population, and particularly female population. And how are you going to do that? You can't get them out if you're asking them to come out under a set of laws under which all this money you're going to be working for, you can't keep this guy you're going to be marrying. He's going to be owning all your property. OK, so this is a little comparison of what happens in territories versus states out in the West. So what I've done here, these highlighted territories, are those that enacted full reform, which again I'm defining by can you bring property into a marriage and keep it, and then also keep your earnings. So these are regions that enacted full reform while they were still territories. Okay, these others became a state at some point in the process. So when we look at this group as a whole and compare these two groups, one thing comes out, which is that they enact their first Married Women's Property Act in the realm of separate estates or earnings when their territory is almost unilaterally. So almost all of these territories begin to act on this issue when they are just in their very early formative stages. The second is, if we compare how long does it take them to go from first legislating on this issue to having kind of full protection for married women's rights, if they finish that process while they're still a territory, it only takes two years. If they become a state, while married women still have this legal disadvantage, then it takes them on average over 11 years to finish the process of extending women's rights. There definitely seems to be some sort of impetus to get along with the business of reform quickly when you're a territory facing this population incentive rather than when you're a state. Okay, so a couple implications that I take from this. One is that interjurisdictional competition was likely important. I think there are some good reasons to think that, okay, this, okay, this is not a monocausal explanation. I don't think you can look at a historical phenomena of this scope and potentially offer a single causal factor that explained it all. But I think political competition was relevant. Guess what? Political competition was not that robust ever. It's really hard to form a new state. States rarely go out of business either. Um, so there's still a, lot, a world difference from market competition. But we're even further away from that today than we were in the 19th century. And a lot of parts of the world have um, very little that seems to resemble any kind of a political market. Second thing, not a surprise probably to anybody in this room, the incentives under which politicians operate matter. I'm not even going to say anything more about that. 
Okay, and then the third one, and a big theme of the weekend we're here to talk about, is that process considerations are an important part of understanding political and social change. So if you stop with the literature that I have presented as being pre-existing at the beginning, there is a lot that we would have not been able, able to even talk about or bring to the front of the conversation about how these dynamics actually played out in practice. And I think there's a lot more to be done here. So we can extend application of this kind of research to other bodies of law that impacted women. I, I'm already doing some of that. Other groups of people, other parts of the world. What are the particular incentives facing uh, the politicians that are creating laws that govern women in India or in Islamic parts of the world? Um, why is that situation the way it is? And um, we can expand on what I've done to try to look at the dynamics of political competition um, by looking more closely at this discovery process aspect. Why is it that laws took exactly this form? And an, a big question, one that I would particularly really like to understand better, is what is the feedback between this set of political incentives and the fact that there probably is what we would genuinely call ideological change happening during this period of time with respect to how people view women and women's role in society. So what women are able to do, these kind of incentive-based opportunities are going to change that ideology, and that ideology might change the opportunities as well. So looking deeper at these connections through kind of an Austrian framework is, I think, another potentially very useful research and direction somebody could go. So I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have about it now. I'm happy to keep talking about it through the rest of the weekend. And thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org.